if you are organizing for anything, if you're organizing for educational justice, if you're organizing for environmental justice, if you're organizing for health justice, if you're organizing for economic justice, racial justice, gender justice, reproductive justice, the number one thing that's getting in your way is the cops. Mm-hmm. And not just in terms of the ways in which they will impede individuals from being able to access those things by killing them, by policing them, by criminalizing them, by brutalizing them, by enforcing exclusion, but also, as you said, by looting the resources, our collective resources for those things and creating this scarcity, which then is criminalized. Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I have a really great guest joining me who I've wanted to have on the show for a really long time. Andrea Ritchie is a writer, organizer, and researcher who has been documenting, organizing, litigating, and agitating around policing and the criminalization of Black women, girls, trans, and gender nonconforming people for over three decades. She is a co-founder of Interrupting Criminalization and the In Our Names Network, and the author of the 2017 book Invisible No More, Police Violence Against Black Women and Women of Color, which was actually one of the books that we first wanted to talk about on this show, so we'll have to have her back sometime to talk about that too. But she's here today to talk about a new book. Well, it actually came out in August of last year, but it is a new book that she co-authored with Mariam Kaba called No More Police, A Case for Abolition that came out in August of 2022 from the New Press. Andrea, welcome to the Death Panel. It's so great to have you on the show. It's so great to be here. I'm a fan and so excited about this conversation and a little nervous. So oh. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, please don't be. I mean, first of all, congratulations on this book. It's, as I said to you before, it's fucking fantastic. And although it was released almost a year ago, you know, abolishing the police is always relevant. I so appreciate that. It it means so much to both Mariam and I to know that it lands well with the folks that we wrote it for, which include organizers and folks who um, produce and listen to this podcast. So it's great to hear that it's useful and it resonates. Well, and we just had Miriam on uh, your co-author on the show to talk about her other recent book, Let This Radicalize You, which was uh, written with Kelly Hayes. And just like that book, No More Police is a really captivating read. It focuses less on organizing and sort of strategy and kind of movement work and more on why policing cannot be part of the future that we are building and living. And contrary to popular media narratives, the movement to defund and abolish the police did not just emerge out of nowhere in 2020 from whole cloth. It's been a demand that has been supported by longstanding organizing efforts. And the idea that abolition is a kind of sudden or new idea really seeks to limit 
our political horizon and make defunding the police seem absolutely unattainable, impossible. But No More Police actually just pokes so many holes in that story and really gets to the core of also how police data is used as a public relations tool to try and prop up this narrative whenever it's challenged. So it's important to understand, you know, beyond that, that the demand to defund the police is also intertwined with and aligned with demands for state-funded COVID protections, like reinstating free testing, freeing people for public health, free COVID care and treatment, demands for ventilation upgrades in schools, mask distribution, et cetera, et cetera. You know, as we've been highlighting on the show over and over, the Biden administration has proudly displayed their firm pro-police stance through their COVID policy and messaging like often, all of the time. And it's not surprising, considering that, you know, Biden has long been involved in increasing the scope and scale of criminalization and has spent his career growing the power of police. And just to give listeners who might not be familiar a preview, you know, since assuming responsibility for the pandemic response, the Biden administration has encouraged diverting pandemic funding to the police numerous times, but said that they have no money for pandemic protections. In the 2023 budget, Biden proposed allocating $37 billion to increase law enforcement funding and support crime prevention. And President Biden condemned defund demands in his 2022 State of the Union address, saying, quote, the answer is not to defund the police. It's to fund the police, fund them, fund them, fund them with resources and training. And uh, when in May of 2023, the White House attempted to rhetorically kill the House GOP bill to increase the debt limit, they did so by claiming that Republicans were trying to defund the police, calling it the biggest vote to defund law enforcement in American history, which is only one of several times we've seen statements from the Biden White House that it is, in fact, Republicans who are trying to defund the police. So while Biden can allocate billions to policing and mobilize Congress against bills cutting law enforcement spending, you know, his administration is also then unchallenged when they claim that the lack of budgetary resources for free vaccines like tests and COVID, you know, is a kind of budget issue. And it requires them to make these hard choices like letting states kick millions of people off of Medicaid. And this is just a small sampling. And in the book, also, Andrea and Maryam go through a bunch of really just enraging examples of the way that police just sort of suck the funds out of the state and the harms that result from that. You know, these actions really do highlight the relevance of the movement to defund the police for those who are interested in COVID protections and health justice. So in light of all of this, it's really important to talk about the core functions of policing. And that's really, you know, what we're going to get into today, which is like, what is required for collective safety? And how do police perpetuate violence and harm, not just just through interpersonal encounters, but through resource extraction and these sort of daily structural means of closing off opportunities for other types of programs or spending or whatever. And so ultimately, the goal today is to kind of talk about how we can talk about and achieve what abolitionists desire, which is safety for everyone. And that's a goal that No More Police shows us that police cannot provide. So with all of that in mind, and I apologize for the fucking ridiculously long preamble, but I just wanted to set up a little context for folks. Andrea, can you start by talking about 
the central idea that No More Police puts forward. And, you know, since our goal today is to kind of make sure that people who might not have background on this or who are newer to our show and might not have been listening in the early years when we did sort of episodes covering more basics can be part of the context that we all have in common. You know, what is the perspective on abolition that's also offered in the book? Well, I appreciate the preamble and and grounding and do want to say that No More Police is a book about organizing for organizers and talks about demands that have emerged from organizing, you know, and you're right to say that the demand to defund police didn't kind of emerge out of thin air in 2020. It comes from decades of organizing by people who are caged by the current criminal punishment system, by people who love them and their families and communities on the outside, and also more broadly by people who are contending with the world that is manufactured and maintained by policing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is certainly a world that was laid bare by the COVID pandemic, a world in which, you know, a globe and certainly a, a country that was, you know, devastated had no public health system, no universal health care, <laughs> no infrastructure of care for elders, children, unhoused people, disabled people, everyone who, you know, is already living at the intersections of multiple structural oppressions and exclusions, who then when the pandemic came roaring through, were placed in even more precarious and deadly situations without any infrastructure of support. And, and then this notion that like, well, we couldn't pay people to stay home like other countries did. And we couldn't pay for, you know, people to have elder care and child care and care for disabled people that was safe for everyone involved and well compensated. And we couldn't pay for PPE at the beginning. I mean, it was just it was preposterous. And it just mm -hmm. really laid bare the world that policing creates in the ways that you're describing in terms of the way that it structures our allocation of resources and how how we construct in our minds the solution to problems. So mm, in the mm -hmm. face of the pandemic, what happened was not only were vast swaths of people sacrificed on the altar of racial capitalism, and that continues today, and not only were those people the same people who live under structural exclusion and, and oppression at many intersections every day, but then those were the people who were targeted by police in the initial response in terms of enforcement of public health orders. And I was fortunate to be part of something called the Pandemic Policing Project that was hosted by the Community Resource Hub that I co-founded with Derricka Purnell and others that was tracking uh, enforcement of public health orders and finding that a big surprise, you know, it was the same people who were being targeted for public health order enforcement as are targeted for every other public offense, you know, and and um, public order offense. And that, in fact, Black women of all demographic groups were the groups most likely to be criminalized and violated by police around public health order enforcement with, and the group that was least likely to have any kind of supports in place and the group most likely to experience devastating impacts from COVID. And so the COVID pandemic really laid bare this world that people who have been organizing to defund and abolish the police have been trying to unmake for decades mm -hmm. and in in service of making a, a different world in which it would have been a very different reality when the pandemic broke out um, because people would have had infrastructures of support and resources would have been available 
not to ticket, criminalize, arrest, cage, um, and punish people, but instead to support, resource, care for, and love people forward through the pandemic. So I think there's so much uh, in this moment and in lessons from that, that that we carry forward in the book. And we also carry forward in the book the the reality that, you know, the destabilization that was produced by the pandemic economically, socially, um, and otherwise, the, the number one response that came from the federal government is and every other government and the one is the one that you just described, which is more policing, right? And even when it came to distribution of pandemic relief funds, the vast majority of those funds went to policing and punishment and containment of the fallout of the pandemic within the broader context of the ongoing collapse of racial capitalism, um, rather than, again, going to the things that would help us rebuild our communities, heal our communities, and take the opportunity to look at what transpired during the pandemic and rebuild the world anew. And and so I think that's that's where No More Police really, in some ways, sort of starts is with the notion that if you are organizing for anything, if you're organizing for educational justice, if you're organizing for environmental justice, if you're organizing for health justice, if you're organizing for economic justice, racial justice, gender justice, reproductive justice, any form of justice, the number one thing that's getting in your way is the cops. Mm-hmm. And not just in terms of the ways in which they will impede individuals from being able to access those things by killing them, by policing them, by criminalizing them, by brutalizing them, by enforcing exclusion at borders or in areas and communities, but also, as you said, by looting the resources, our collective resources for those things and creating this scarcity, which then is criminalized. And so that is really where the arguments in No More Police come from, which is that police don't create safety. They never were intended to create safety. They get in the way of safety. They can't be fixed to create safety because that's not their purpose. But we can and do create safety under conditions that are vastly under-resourced. We saw this when there wasn't elder care for folks, when there wasn't child care care, when there wasn't, you know, uh, financial support to stay home, when there wasn't PPE, we all did it for each other. And the thing is, we need to have more resources available to do that. And we need to pour more resources into institutions that are able to do that collectively without bringing with them notions of surveillance, policing and punishment. So that those are three arguments we make in the book. And then we sort of demonstrate that not just with data and research, but also with organizing, with mm-hmm. examples from organizing around the country so and, and across generations. So we're, we do our best to sort of really uh, debunk and unveil a lot of the mythology, including a lot of the mythology that came in the form of this really forcible backlash post-2020 around mm-hmm. crime and violence and gun violence and murder, which, you know, so much of those statistics, if you looked at them closely even, which most media don't. They just sort of take notes for the cops and keep it moving. They were conflating all kinds of things that were violence and not violence, uh, crimes and not crimes, murder and not murder, and claiming that all of it was going up because there had been this challenge to police power post the murder of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Tony McDade, and hundreds of others since May 2020, when in fact, thousands of others, in fact, since May 2020, um, when in fact, the research shows that it was the conditions of the pandemic itself that 
created conditions that increase some kinds of violence, but other kinds of violence and other forms of harm went down. And so we try and unpack sort of some of that data and the notion that crime statistics are not things that, I mean, crime statistics are things that are created by the police. They are the ones who make the numbers that are then used to judge their own performance, right? So, Mm -hmm. and they're the ones who define what is quote unquote a crime and what is not. And then, you know, which things are going to get enforced and which things are going to be swept under the rug and against who and how and when and why, and, you know, and, and always in service of maintaining their power and the powers they maintain and uphold. It's so, There's certainly part of the book that is about unpacking and debunking that and also showing that the force of the backlash and the fact that, as you were saying at the beginning, you know, Joe Biden keeps having to answer this demand over and over again in his State of the Union address everywhere, sort of (laughs) the power of the demand, which is saying exactly what we want, take money away from death-making institutions and put them into life-giving practices and institutions and communities is so powerful that he keeps having to counter it. And they keep having to try and declare the movement dead when, you know, something's really dead. If something's really dead, you don't have to declare it dead 30 times constantly. So you just notice that it is and then you move on. So I think um, there's so much kind of around giving organizers tools to, to resist that, you know, the, the, crime statistic narrative and backlash and to see that it comes actually from what was the most powerful threat to police legitimacy in a generation to understand that it's not something that's like pushing them back, but is actually something that is a response to the power that they're demonstrating and that we demonstrated. And it's real and we need to figure out how to um, respond to it. And then the, the rest of the book is really sort of showing how so many attempts to recuperate and to, um, you know, twiddle with and fix and, you know, regulate policing, including many that were being surfaced in 2020 as, you know, quote unquote, the solution um, (laughs) are in fact just ways of putting more money into policing and more legitimacy into policing without having any real impact on how policing plays out because policing is doing exactly what policing is supposed to do. Um, And then to really spend time thinking about what it would take to 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 push forward an alternate vision. You know, moments mm-hmm. like 2020 and, and the pandemic are, you know, there's many people call them conjunctures. They people call them portals. People call them all <laughs> kinds of things, but there are moments where there are competing visions. And we're still very much in that kind of moment where there are competing visions of the of the future. And, you know, there's an opportunity to kind of wormhole into one or wormhole into another, to shove one into that portable or shove another. And that's what abolitionist organizing is about. It's it's not just about dismantling. It's about envisioning, imagining, and enacting an entirely different way of organizing our society and our relationships with each other and the land around us in such a way that we're building a more liberatory future that isn't focused on and organized around the violence of surveillance, policing, and punishment, but is focused and organized around meeting human needs as needs without conditions or regulation and building transformative relationships with each other that will prevent, interrupt and heal harm and, and transform harm. So that's, I don't know, in a, in a small rant nutshell with the book. (laughs) That was a top tier rant. I loved it. No, it was beautifully Marvin framed. Are, are, are rant, uh, ranters extraordinaires. Well, and I'm a <laughs> rant appreciator anonymous. <laughs> Not anonymous. Very public rant appreciator. Yes. 
Well, no, it's it's such a it's such a beautiful framing, and I think it's so important to also sort of foreground. Oftentimes when we're talking about abolition on this show, because of the kind of background that I'm coming from and like the work that I do sort of looking at disability and psychiatry, like we're we're often talking about prison abolition and the kind of institutional model. And we actually don't spend as much time talking about the police framework. And, and I'm really glad that we get a chance to revisit it today because it's such a good example of structural violence and how that's enacted through political economy. Just police budgets. If we leave aside like all of the other attendant compounding harms of police, right? And we just look at like police budgets. That in and of itself paints a picture of actually how the state is working and what the priorities are and where we're willing to spend money because it's not an issue of can we pay for it? It's you know, an issue of like, does the state want to pay for it? And are the conditions where the state can pay for it even possible? Which, you know, there's the example of Minneapolis. And maybe we can talk about some of the examples that are actually early on in the book of, you know, successful defund organizing and how that can actually like reverberate into building real actual safety in a community just through like alleviating the extraction on the limited amount of money that cities and states and municipalities have to spend on things like essential services like trash pickup or whatever. There's so many examples. I'm, uh, you know, we just put out a report. We put out sort of updates to a toolkit that we put out in 2020 called Defund the Police, Fund the People, Defend Black Lives. And we just put out kind of our third update called The Struggle Continues. And it just shows so many ways that communities are coming together to have that conversation about what do we need to create, you know, safer, thriving, nourishing, nurturing sustainable communities and how what how would we allocate our resources to get there and whether it's the Seattle People's Budget or the Phoenix Pueblo's Budget or the Long Beach Forward People's Budget or um there's just many other places that I you know certain New York City currently has a budget justice campaign where there's some very detailed um proposals that have come out of Communities United for Police Reform which is a, a campaign I had the privilege of being part of that is made up of hundreds of groups across the city. And in each of the instances, communities have come together through participatory research, through kind of using a a promotora model where you have one person in the community who brings a bunch of folks together in the living room and sort of talks together about what communities need. And, And in so many places, people are imagining and then kind of pricing out and costing and putting together comprehensive budgets that name and describe and put concrete steps forward towards what kinds of communities they want to build and create. And I think in some cities, they've had more success than others in moving those budgets forward. I know Seattle defunded the police department um, two or three years in a row and was able to move that money to participatory budgeting, to community-based safety services. And in other cities, there've been varying degrees of success. But I think what is even more successful in some ways is the process. 
the process of reimagining communities together and developing a really concrete blueprint that in some ways people can fight City Hall for, but also that people can fight for and build together and gather resources and extract resources in other ways and in really creative ways to do. So I wish I could sort of name like one specific success, but in many ways, I'm happy I don't because I think right. there's so many happening. You know, in, in Raleigh, they got the city to like pay for free public transportation, right? Like that's a win that, you know, maybe didn't make the headlines, but it was a win that was fought for and won through organizing um, around how much money was going to policing, including policing of public transit when people just needed a way to get around, you know, and, and to do that safely and sustainably um, and, and to do it without criminalization. And so there's other places where in Durham, uh, just over, you know, the way from Raleigh, they won a non-police crisis response and they have just put together a really clear kind of case for how effective that is and how useful it is in community in the community and how much obviously better it is than a police response. And also they're saying, and we shouldn't have to wait to the moment of crisis. Like mm -hmm. what can we build for our community to prevent crises from happening in the first place and have a safety task force that's putting that together. Um, you know, folks in Oakland are practicing uh, and sharing and training other folks on mental health first as a, as a community response that is as much about prevention and aftercare and healing as it is only as it is about crisis response. And it's responding to crises of state violence, gender-based violence, and other needs in community. And so there's across the country, just folks who are really enacting the world that they want, practicing, making real the world that they want, and through budget campaigns, and also through building what communities need and extracting resources wherever they can to make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that's important to remember is that part of why it's very frustrating, especially when you see the the Biden administration say, oh, you know, we've got to put $37 billion aside for crime prevention. <laughs> and we absolutely definitely cannot pay for vaccines for uninsured people, you know, through when the supply runs out. You know, we don't have the money. We can't pressure Congress, blah, 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 whatever. You know, the thing that's so frustrating about that is that states, local municipalities, cities, they can spend money differently than the federal government. The federal government can spend a shit ton of money and they like have through their budgetary and appropriations process, like a whole way of allocating that money, but it creates the money. And states can only spend what they collect in tax revenues. And through, you know, these kinds of models, we have the kind of understanding of like zero sum policy, policy austerity emerge, right? The idea of like a fixed pool where, you know, what I put in as a taxpayer goes out. And if it goes to Project X, then it cannot go to Project Y. And so that's actually kind of the one of the mythologies that this show actually originally got started to try and address and disentangle was, you know, where do we actually not have the money? And where is the money going if we don't have it? And sort of why can we not do things like single payer health care, allegedly, and actually sort of what lies beneath these claims that we couldn't do them, right? And oftentimes it's that this city has X amount of money and revenue and the police takes 79% of it and then the rest is distributed amongst 
services from there. And so this then builds into the mythology also of, oh, you know, like if if X group gets something, then my thing won't happen because we're living in this kind of perpetual model of austerity. But the federal government doesn't have to spend money that way. And it's part of this whole broader conversation that really just forecloses on building the world that we want and building alternatives to policing and instead funnels money into policing, into building up the carceral state, whether that's through institutional models or through the kind of direct policing model. It's all on the same spectrum. And as you and Mary write in the beginning of the book, in the introduction, um, quote, practically speaking, abolition means that our social and economic relationships must be transformed. There are countless experiments and projects across the country and the world practicing these new social relationships now. There is no fixed roadmap to abolition. Instead, we must spend time imagining, strategizing, and practicing other futures. However, there is a clear case for why policing can play no role in that future. And, you know, I want to actually start by here by talking about like what safety really looks like to try and get people imagining cuz oftentimes conversations like this will start with like here are the police harms right <laughs> and here are all the reasons why the police are bad and i want us to start with like what is safety to really get people thinking as we go through some of the shitty stuff about police in the mindset of actually like yeah you have permission to imagine this stuff like forget what you have been told forget what has been um told to you about what we can afford to pay for in our society and give yourself permission to think about what your needs are, what your community's needs are, and how you could actually meet those needs under different circumstances in a different framework. And then sort of how can we get there? That's that's a kind of political transformation that is incredibly difficult. Like this isn't like an easy thing to do because so much of capitalist hegemony is created by reinforcing the idea that that kind of imagining is foolish madness or impossible. There's so much in what you just said. I mean, one, I grew up in a country under single payer health care. It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I and and I never had to worry about anything. I just would go in to my doctor, present my card. Now, of course, I had privilege of citizenship, and that's not true for folks who don't have that privilege. And I also don't have that privilege anymore because apparently once you leave for five years, you, you can't come back and get it. So um, <laughs> so there's limitations. It's like a, you break it, you bought it situation. <laughs> Something, I don't know. There's But there's definitely limitations, which I would love to support organizers um, in addressing. But it the point is, I grew up in a world where that was very much possible and in fact, just a reality. And it was a product of political choices and of contention and of, of, of you know, a contention for a vision of a world in which everyone would have um, access at least to minimal health care. And so I, I want us to to keep in mind the things that we're told are not possible in the U.S. are very much possible elsewhere in the world um, and that we, one, need to kind of look outside the U.S. to be reminded of that. Mm -hmm. I think... Um, there is also this 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 notion um, that we talk about in the book of police being in our minds as the solution, not as a problem. And I think that's where that's the I mean, I know that's where we need to really do the work of extracting the police from our imaginations and also from our hearts 
as the solution to every form of conflict, harm, and need. So it requires us to divest financially, but also ideologically and emotionally from policing and punishment. And that's mm-hmm. that's not easy, right? It's because it's hard for people to imagine something that is truly different. Often people are willing to think of something that looks slightly different, but ultimately is the same, right? People will say things like treatment, not punishment. Mm-hmm. When treatment is punishment. Social in, workers, not cops. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, and so when in fact, those are just different forms of, of policing um, that are enacting the same results. So I think we really have to, to be critical and extracting those ways of thinking and understanding and relating to each other from ourselves. And, and they, it's difficult to do because it's kind of like the world we've lived in and have lived in for generations, but also because our society is structured in such a way that is designed to limit our imagination in that way, right? Like everything Mm -hmm. is, you know, well, you just have to be able to call a number for something, right? So if people are like, sure, I would prefer not to call 911 when there's an unhoused person in front of my house, but please give me another number to call to remove them, maybe less violently, (laughs) um, as opposed to, hmm, how am I going to organize with my neighbors to make sure everybody has the housing they need, Right. right? Like, or, you know, the it, the removal impulse has to be extracted from the equation. Exactly. And that's the hardest part to remove, not the 911 part. Yeah, no, exactly. And then, you know, I think, you know, Mariam and else others like Dean Spade talk about the, are the de-skilling that has come, right, which is, mm-hmm. you know, which is part of industrialization and, and capitalism, which is that we've all become sort of automated and atomized into particular functions. And so therefore I'm taught that I don't have what it takes to intervene when, you know, one of my neighbors is physically assaulting another one of my neighbors um, or that I don't have what it means to intervene when someone I know is, is experiencing a crisis of some kind and that I have to be able to call someone who will then, you know, do an assessment of whether they've met the conditions for this and whether mm-hmm. they meet the qualifications for that. And which shuts so many people out of everything. And, but we have an idea in our head that we've created something for that person. So we don't need to be responsible for it. So I think it's up to them to access, you know, their the right. services now. Right. 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 And I think most people don't understand like how many exclusive there are from services. They don't. So they think, oh, there's services for people who, you know, have this or that or this other challenge. And they don't understand that actually a very small fraction of people can access them. And then they're often policed out of it. So it, it's an, a, an illusion um, that things are, are being taken care of when in fact it, it's not. So I think those are important things when we're thinking about, you know, what is safety? It's not something that someone else is going to create for us. Uh, we talk in the book about how it's not, you know, a product that someone's going to be able to sell us. And it's also <laughs> yeah. never going to be something that we can achieve, actually, mm-hmm. because we are on a rock hurtling through the universe at a very high speed with lots of unpredictable things happening. There's many, you know, things that um, we can't predict or prevent or stop that are are dangerous or harmful or um, unsettling or, or scary. But what we can do is increase our capacity to navigate them, to live through them, to support each other through them, to lessen suffering. And I think that's that's part of the problem is Mariam, when we were talking about the book, uh, talked about this as like a protection racket, right? The cops is, come and yeah. try and like sell us, yeah, if you give us money, we'll make you safe. And then it's like, oh, well, we're here. And then coming and extracting money from you over there to address the problems we've created. It's just really, it's a delusion. And I think 
Um, now that doesn't mean that we don't all have the right to the things that make us feel safer, like housing, you know, food, shelter, uh, community, material needs. But one thing Mariam really emphasized in the book is that safety is really relational. It's it's about safety. It's about our relationship to each other, our relationship to our surroundings, our relationship to the planet, our relationship to resources. That's what safety is made of. And, they're, and it's relative, right? It's relative mm-hmm. to conditions, to um, who we are. It's, it's relative to, um, and it shouldn't be relative to who we are in the sense of race, gender, and sexuality, but et cetera, and class and disability and nation and, and so on. But it's it's relative to to who we are in terms of how we're able to move through our environment, what our needs are, and and so on. And so I think we really have to understand that and then figure out how we want to increase everyone's access to the relationships, the skills, the infrastructure, and the things that meet our material needs such that we all minimize harm and maximize well-being in our communities. And that's what people are doing when they're thinking about these people's budgets and and organizing to build safety in communities. And I think going back to something you said earlier about, you know, the focus on police as opposed to prisons, I think certainly the origins of abolitionist organizing were in California for one sort of thread of it around when prison populations began to skyrocket and it became clear that the zero sum game was being brought into play, right? It was mm-hmm. like, we have to cage all these people who are now being incarcerated under three strikes laws mm-hmm. and that's going to cost money. And therefore we need, we're going to have to cut. They literally said at the time, we're going to have to cut our education budgets. <laughs> yeah. And people have been fighting that ever since on, and people continue to fight that in California and are still fighting to close um, prisons in California and to divert those funds to meeting community needs. I think the focus, shifting the focus to police is important because, you know, it's all part of a pipeline, right? Mm-hmm. And the the police reach, their web um, extends much more broadly and more deeply and more widely and through many more institutions and criminalization takes many forms that lead to exclusion and violence and harm and denial. Um, so the police just touch more people's lives yeah. every year and sh- and literally through you know one encounter can shape the entire course of um a person and a family and a community's life and so it's important to focus on police because of that reach they also suck up a tremendous proportion of the resources mm-hmm. and um also because it brings it to the municipal level in the way that you were talking about earlier and enables people in every community to be in this fight right mm-hmm. to be in this fight of imagining what we need to create thriving sustainable communities that are built around people's well-being and um and care and compassion for each other at every community level so we don't have to think about the the federal level we can really be you know focused on everywhere we are mm-hmm. and i feel like that is critical and to another point that you were saying i think it's really important to remember that They'll tell you that it's a zero sum game at the local level, but it's not. Anyone who's ever fought a defund campaign knows that there's always more money for cops. It's not like there's this many billions of dollars and, you know, it's literally that's it. If we take money away from the cops, they will find a defund organizers have learned. They'll find other ways of getting it. They'll get it from the federal government. They'll get it from private corporations, as is happening in Atlanta in the fight to stop Cop City. They'll get it from police foundations who will raise the money from 
other philanthropic um, entities. There's there's ways in which somehow, in, in some ways, society will find a way to print money for cops, right? Yes. No matter what, but they won't find a way to print money for healthcare or housing or um, education or the environment. And so it's it's important for us to name that at the municipal level as well and to um, say, you know, we can have what we want at the municipal level, even within whatever constraints there are, because it's all kind of a farce right? mm-hmm. <laughs> that mm-hmm. we that we can make money available for the things that we need. Um, and so we should, from an imagination perspective, really, that's why that I really find these Pueblo's budgets, people's budgets, um, budget justice campaigns really important because people are refusing that constraint on their imagination. They're using police budgets as kind of a a measuring stick and a metric to be like, look at all the money over there and what you could be doing with it over here. But they're not feeling limited by that. Right. Mm -hmm. They're saying, actually, we can have money for the things we want. And they're putting, you know, taxes on corporations like the Amazon tax in Seattle. They're taxing millionaires who, you know, or billionaires who have are on their fourth house in a particular area. Right. You know, they're (laughs) people are finding that it's equally about how we generate our resources as it is about how we expend and allocate them. And people are fighting on multiple fronts to bring the visions of the communities and societies they want into being. Right. And well, and I think this is one of the best examples of exactly why police cannot produce safety in a community because of the sort of fundamental relationship of economic extraction that we know just permeates the United States. And I think particularly, like, I really appreciated the way that you framed that because it's it's important to look at policing absolutely because it does go to that hyper-local level in a way that institutional analysis and critique can't actually show us, right? The kind of way that the economic and political logic also permeates at a local level is really important for understanding also like the massive capacity that we have for doing things differently. Because once you really start to understand also like how large police infrastructure is and extensive, it does also give you ideas of other ways to do things and the ways that small communities could very easily be completely changed overnight from defunding the police. It's it's like, I think, an incredibly inspiring, but also really important example. And I, and I want to also focus on police more because police also tell us something about data that when we look at abolition and in institutions is actually not as obvious. And this is really kind of one of the, the things that is part of actually one of the core functions of policing, which is that police are really in this process of justifying themselves. And and Andrea, you talked a little bit about how crime statistics are often just unquestioned and reproduced one for one in the media. And if you really kind of break things out and look a little bit more closely, what you see is a very different picture from the narrative that's presented. But in terms of sort of what policing is at its core, can we talk about sort of how... <laughs> that also fits into like what we understand crime to be through data and numbers. Because I think people see this almost as a personal issue of maybe personal safety or community safety. And we've talked about these expansive alternatives, but I, I want 
also to sort of understand the inverse and sort of how police capture the idea of safety through the manipulation of data. Yeah, I mean, I think it's about it's why we started interrupting criminalization, uh, Mariam and I, is because actually it's this process of criminalization that's at the root of all of it, which is it's not about, oh, we decide what's, you know, against the law or what we want to um what kinds of behaviors we want to control and then we we make a rule about it and then we enforce that rule mm-hmm. it's actually about how we want to structure society right? Right. and then and then who needs to be contained controlled surveilled uh, coerced um and how that shapes what policing is and mm-hmm. so you know police manufacture a certain kind of society through surveillance, containment, control, caging, Mm -hmm. exclusion, um, but also just abandonment, right? And whether that's like the organized abandonment of what happens when all the money goes to policing, criminalization and and control, and none of it goes to meeting people's needs, but also the ways in which, you know, it's an abandonment to have the only number to call in any Mm -hmm. kind of crisis situation or community be armed agents of the state who have one tool, right? Violence. Right. And we we mention this stuff offhand all the time, but it is like so important to actually stop and dwell on the details here because it it's like, I think when you get sort of imbued in this stuff and it becomes part of your analysis and you see the abandonment everywhere, it's sometimes hard to remember to like go back and retrace your steps and go back to that kind of fundamental core and look at really sort of what is the value and sort of like inspiration that we can gain from like reminding ourselves to kind of continually return to no more police as a demand and a kind of desire politically. Right. It's thinking about like what what is the purpose of that cop and that cop and that cop and that cop? And, you know, what is the larger structure that it's creating and upholding and doing that. So I say that because, you know, then if you think of police as, as about containing, controlling and and coercing people uh, using violence towards particular ends that, you know, facilitate extraction of racialized, you know, racial through racialized capitalism, then it becomes clear that the laws that we think of as, you know, neutral moral laws are that are enforced, albeit maybe sometimes unequally or whatever, <laughs> you know, but are, you know, ultimately like that's that's a legitimate process. It's just sometimes misused or twisted or whatever. And it's like, no, that process is how you manufacture racial capitalism. <laughs> right? right. And I think um and it's not about actions. It's about who's doing it. Right. Criminalization is about who the state decides to punish and and encourage other people to punish and why and when and how. And so um, that comes to this question then about these so-called objective statistics about crime. Right. Not everything that is harmful is named as a crime. Not everything that is a crime is harmful. Um to people. It's sometimes harmful to capital, but it's not harmful to people and (laughs) um, or to, you know, living beings. Um, And those things all get very kind of conflated and uh, spun in the washer to create crime statistics uh, that will then be used to basically sell to us the notion that this is the, the this path of policing and punishment is the way to safety. And so you know, we talk about how when the, the sort of 
hysteria, clarion call that crime is going up, crime is going up, crime is going up. Like, is littering going up? Is, you know, (laughs) unlicensed hair braiding going up? Is jaywalking going up? Is, you know, um, uh, people at one point were being charged, probably still are being charged for like plugging their cell phones in at Grand Central Station and mm-hmm. this theft of services that was called, you know, because they were unhoused. Of course, the businessman who was plugging his cell phone in at Grand Central Station was not at all being policed. You know, there's ways in which right now it's becoming very clear that policing of bathroom use around the country is going to increase. It's already happening. You don't need a law to do it, but the laws are happening um, as part of this wave of of legislation and policy targeting criminalizing trans and gender nonconforming people. You know, all of that gets named in this vague way as crime going up <laughs> yeah. um, in a way that makes people think that they are at risk of being murdered in their beds, which is just not at all what those statistics, uh, what what crime statistics mean at all, right? It means mm-hmm. that what the cops have decided is what they're going to police and punish um, is, is going up. And so that's one piece. The second piece is, and meanwhile, the things that they're not going to police and punish, like wage theft mm-hmm. or um, environmental degradation or all the things that, you know, capital is engaged in on a daily basis as a, as the way they do business is, is not going to get addressed, even though those things kill and harm more people than certainly jaywalking. Right. So, um, so that's one piece is like sort of how the numbers get played with and fudged. I think the second thing that's important to know is that like, as I said earlier, police are, are the ones who control the crime statistics and the crime statistics are what are used to justify their existence and their budgets. Mm -hmm. So it's not a disinterested thing happening there. And it's been shown that they manipulate crime statistics up and down, depending on what serves their interests, like across the country from LA to New York, it's been shown that cops do that. And the third thing, and no one's checking them, right? Mm -hmm. If the cops, if if a cop came out tomorrow and said, you know, homicides are up uh, 300% in uh, Detroit where I live, um, the newspapers would just write that down and run with that story. No one would call a coroner and be like, but are they? <laughs> like, right. Like, have you, are you registering this many increased deaths? You know, what is the cause of death in each of these instances? Like, what's the, what's the, what are the circumstances that happened? And so, and in like you know, half of counties, the coroner is like explicitly a cop and we'll just exactly. say whatever the cops say anyway. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. When I was, and I was like, <laughs> and that person is part of that machine too. So I think there's, there's this piece also. And then, um, so there's manipulation, there's no fact checking, there's sort of blurring the lines about what's crime versus what's violence versus what's harm and, you know, what crimes are named as violent crimes, which are, you know, not don't involve violence against a person or um, a, a living being. So I think there's so much in that that we need to get um, critical and clear about. Mm-hmm. And also, even when, objectively speaking, homicides are going up. I'm not going to be arguing at someone's gravesite with, you know, their loved ones that, you know, that's what's well, not as high as it was, you know, it's not as high as they're saying or whatever, like that's a person who was harmed and killed. And we can't deny that those things are happening. I think then the question is, what are we doing for that person? What are we right. doing to prevent the next form of harm from happening? Because all cops do is show up after the fact. Right. And most of the time, that's it. <laughs> they show up and that's all. And or they show up and do more violence and do no um, good. And so I think 
that's the other piece about crime statistics is that you're looking at a picture of an outcome of an effect, but you're not looking at the sort of matrix that led to that. And Mm -hmm. in each of these instances of harm, there was a series of systems that failed leading up to that. There was a series of relationships that were broken. There were a series of harms that were done. There were a series of needs that were not met. And none of the, and the statistics don't name that. And they don't then point us towards that. They just point us to individuals, um, communities, and you know, practices that have been deemed criminal and criminalized by the existing structures. And so there's so many levels at which crime statistics are not a real measurement or assessment of the harms in our society. They're manipulated to push us to continue to be in this protection racket um, with the cops and police and prisons and, and punishment. And they obscure the forces at work that are producing the harm and preventing us from addressing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciated there's um this one line, it's early on in the book where uh, you guys talk about that, you know, the the way that data is used to tell the story of the role of police in society, it is like a completely inaccurate measure of generalized risk um, for violence, for murder, etc. But that part of it is that ultimately what it produces is a, a, a kind of cultural landscape in which people overestimate the likelihood of facing kind of random harm or stranger danger or something, you know, that would require, I guess, in theory, some crisis intervention. And they actually then underestimate the likelihood of facing preventable or structural harm. And we think of that preventable structural harm as being something we couldn't prevent and we couldn't help, you know, like the deaths pulled from the future kind of framework from the pandemic. And then we think about the kind of random harm is something that policing prevents because that's part of the narrative. But as you're, you're saying, you know, in actuality, actually, when you often speak to folks who have experienced, quote unquote, violent crimes and reported to the police, it's rare that you hear from someone that the police were helpful at all or sort of satisfied any of their needs. And often folks in needs like go massively under met throughout any process of sort of dealing with the police. You you know, so you have the kind of framework of like this kind of flipping of what we can stop and and what just is kind of like course of nature that completely is a lie. I mean, it's so frustrating, but it's actually so simple when you lay it out and almost that's like what's the most frustrating about it. It all makes sense you just look at it through the lens of like, what serves racial capitalism? Right. <laughs> like what serves, you know, concentration, extraction, accumulation of wealth by privileged racialized few at the expense of a racialized many. And I, I think I just keep coming back to, you know, there's a world that police uh, create and enforce that is the air we live and breathe in. Yeah. And the challenge is to swim our way out and to find our way out and to dream our way out and to practice our way out and to to question every way in which we're taught that the answer to anything involves violence in a cage um, Mm -hmm. or some other form of coercion and control that literally takes resources away from just meeting the need Mm -hmm. that that people have as a need and evolving you know as as a society and as individuals as people in in how we care for each other. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. 
And I mean, in terms of also the kinds of frameworks that we've talked about and actually kind of building and and creating and imagining the resources that can actually meet some of the needs and help folks through crisis you know it's it's actually learning how to recognize when you're being tricked that's really important towards beginning to understand this stuff and that's a really good question to ask yourself anytime you're wondering like why something's happening and what the point of whatever structural cruelty you've encountered is is like and what would this outcome serve for racial capitalism, you're you're going to pretty quickly be able to find the answer and contextualize it within that broader critique, which is so important. And I think one thing that I really appreciated about the book is you lay this out, you sort of lay out this critique, and you then talk about how sort of all of this really actually forces us to confront the question of like, well, can the state actually even perform any of these kinds of functions without surveillance, police, punishment, coercion, neglect, abandonment, right? And that, you know, which are the ones that are sort of structurally part of the state? And this is why we've been talking about, you know, Nate Holdren's work on social murder in the pandemic so much on the show, because, you know, part of the frame that Nate's been thinking through these past three years is how COVID is a very good example of the structural necessity for uh, social murder that's just inherently built into the capitalist political economy. And so actually sort of looking at the question of how and why no more police is a really important demand brings us to a point where we can start asking the question and having the discussion of like, you know, how much of the state needs to be dismantled to put in place different systems of governance, of meeting needs, of provisioning, of distributing resources. The live question and a lively debate among abolitionists that I, I certainly don't pretend to have the answers to no. or have it any way resolved. <laughs> um, we lay out some of the sort of different positions in the book and some thoughts and sort of our conclusions, which are what we we definitely need to dismantle a racial capitalist carceral state. Um, I'm not aware of an anti-capitalist state that was also anti-carceral and that cap, you know, capitalism and abolition can't coexist. And so uh, trying to discern a way forward is the live debate and practice, to be honest. And so we we put out a discussion tool that has some questions um, in it to sort of aid us in thinking these things through and particularly thinking through, I think, a fallacy that, you know, what we know to be the racial capitalist white supremacist Northern European and um, by export North American and then global state is the only state form. Right. It's certainly the predominant one. And then there's, you know, socialist state forms that some would argue were state capitalist forms and and not certainly not anti-carceral. So, right. so we need to move beyond that. And I think, you know, folks in the global South have really sort of called called the question of the experiment of seizing the state to transform it and said, you know, we've been doing that for some time now. And it seems there might be something about this technology of the state itself that we're struggling with. Um, and let's see if we can uh, create space to 
keep kind of fumbling towards the next thing that might reveal the next thing or might reveal a dead end or might turn us back in the direction of, you know, that we came or back to the square one or, you know, something worse. But let's keep practicing new forms of or old forms um, or parallel forms of governance and social and economic relations. And that we need to do that while also contending with the reality and the power of the current state, both in terms of, you know, when it sees something that we're practicing that it finds threatening, it's going to come and get rid of it. Um, and we have to be prepared to resist that. Um, and it's not only the state, it's also the kind of um, people who are advancing the interests of the state in the forms of fascism and white supremacy who will come get those things too. And we need to be prepared to defend them. And that we also, the state has all our resources right Mm -hmm. now. So we need to figure out how to extract them back or stop them from being extracted in the first place in order to resource these, these practices. And, you know, some people will be trying to work, you know, within states to create conditions that will make these, you know, experiments beyond states more possible and, and make new forms of governance and social and economic relations uh, more possible. And so uh, that framework was described as, you know, a dual power strategy by the Zapatistas, has been described by uh, movements in Chile and uh, Central and South America against liberalism as, you know, within, against, and beyond the state. Uh, Mi Gente as an organization in the United States has really sort of brought that framework forward. Most recently, it was one... um, that when I was in Insight in the 2000s um, was brought by organizers from Chile to that uh, sort of formation and so and shaped our work. So I think that we're not just turning our back on the state because the state has all our stuff mm-hmm. and also, you know, has a lot of power that we can't be turning our back on. Um, and also there are possibilities within it. And I really am moved by the ways the state has been described as, you know, a condensation of social forces and as a space of contestation for power and contestation of visions for the future that is animated by people. And that, mm-hmm. you know, they're not, it's not like something in the sky that's like <laughs> fixed and, you know, that is descending on us or not. Or and in so, a book. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so I do, I, do, I am, you know, sort of also wanting to not abandon the possibility that there might be a way of structuring ourselves that might have some similarities. And, you know, but as I, I think I was in a conversation with um, Leanne Betamasake Simpson, who was like, look, if it does, as long as it doesn't look like this state, <laughs> the settler colonial state, <laughs> racial capitalist state, then, you know, show me. But, you know, right now that's the one I, I'm absolutely not interested in, 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 in perpetuating or trying to recuperate. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's where the struggle is, is, is um, sort of steering clear of recuperation of something that is irrecuperable while also seizing and popularizing the parts of it that, that are essential. And I think particularly the arena of healthcare and education public and libraries, you know, mm-hmm. uh, are public institutions that we fought for, that we right. fought to create and that we want to extract carcerality from, uh, whether it's a library cop or, you know, the way library fines are assessed or the way books are chosen or not chosen. <laughs> you know, um, there's a whole bunch of ways in which those institutions have been infected, as every institution has been, with carcerality, mm-hmm. uh, policing and punishment and extract those things. There. And we want to extract the boundaries around them and we want to make them 
truly public goods um, or, you know, what we call the commons. And and the same goes for, you know, healthcare. It doesn't have to be a centralized hospital that everyone can go to. It should be take many forms yeah. that meet many needs uh, in many, you know, like it's almost a multiplicity number of ways of creating well-being. But if there needs to be a central coordinating, you know, institution to do that, that we call something <laughs> like the <laughs> Department of Health, then let's keep the cops out of it. Let's keep coercive force, you know, medical interventions and treatments out of it. Let's keep, you know, the things out of it that are policing and punishment and exclusion in different forms. Let's make sure people can get every kind of care they need and want without, you know, condition or um, criminalization. And then and then we'll see if we call that, you know, the Department of Health or if we call it something else. So I think I don't I'm not trying to abandon those institutions to people who would destroy them or limit them, you know, make them Christian, Judeo-Christian, you know, theocratic institutions. That's not the goal. So mm-hmm. I want everyone to be able to go to have a liberatory experience of learning somewhere. And if whatever structures are necessary to make that possible, um, I want to fight to preserve and get the cops and the special ed tracking and the, you know, educating people to become cogs in a capitalist machine pieces out of it, but continue the parts about it that are liberatory and universal. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's part of this discussion guide is really to help people sort of parse out, like, what are the functions of the state does now that we want it to continue? What are the functions it can't do without policing or kind of distributing life chances according to certain criteria that amounts to policing or is it possible to shift that or is it possible to imagine new ways of doing it? Um, is it possible to imagine the state doing it without policing and punishment? And if so, how do we move towards that? So um, I really invite people to sit with the questions, sit with them as a group with people you don't need to know, you know, whatever high Marxist theory, <laughs> you know, about a state. You just have to look around you and how they organize and institutions around you and and think about how they operate and how you want them to operate and 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 what might be pathways to imagine otherwise and practice otherwise, more importantly, together. Mm-hmm. And and we are creating a zine series um based on folks' responses to that. Oh, and awesome. so a couple will be coming out in a month or so, but we really invite folks, if you do um, sit with some folks and have conversations about those questions and you have some things you want to share, there's an email address, email them to us and we're going to gather them together in zines. Cause this is a, like I said, at the beginning is a live conversation mm-hmm. among abolitionists that's happening in many, many different places. And it's not just a theoretical one, mm-hmm. right? Because it means it shapes what you do in your defund campaign, right? Yeah. Are you saying when you say housing, not cops, are you saying police surveilled criminalized public housing that's shitty not accessible and not and (laughs) and unhealthy and environmentally degraded or are you saying we want some other kind of housing and then is do we want private developers to do that do we want to do public private partnerships like co-ops land trusts what are we doing you know and all that requires us to think about how we want the state to relate to housing and how Mm -hmm. we want you know, how do we want to extract carcerality from housing uh, and not just when it comes to the police being present in it or the public housing authority determining who can be in it and who can't, but also how we police each other in housing. You know, Mm -hmm. there's lots of places who are winning, you know, land trusts and social housing and other things where people will be living together. How will we live together without policing each other um, in and out of those 
housing, new housing formations that we're practicing. So there's so much in that question and about the ways that we carry the state inside of us and policing and criminalization inside of us that really requires us to sit with those questions, think, practice, try, fail, try again and learn and keep going. Yeah. Oh, that was fucking beautiful. I'm honestly, I'm so grateful to to you, Andrea, because many years ago when I first sort of struggled with the question of dual power and of of sort of it was in the context of realizing that there were like, you know, critical limitations to single payer healthcare systems, you know, for sick people like me pretty much everywhere you went, whether it was the United States or Canada or the UK and, you know, Scandinavia, that pretty much in all of these different systems of socialized medicine that I was organizing towards that I was finding the same abandonment of people with chronic illnesses. And I questioned for the first time, you know, am I doing harm by working on a, you know, reform, right? And this was, I want to say like 20, I want to say like 2016 or something. And I encountered your work and it helped me, like it helped shepherd me through that question towards realizing that asking myself that question was the point of like what I was supposed to do all day from the moment I woke up until I went to bed because (laughs) the show would not exist without that impulse. And I am incredibly grateful to you and your work. And also Dean Spade has been a huge, you know, touchstone for me here as well. So always shout out to Dean. We love Dean. You know, but these are the questions that are so important. And this is something that I think a lot of folks are kind of grappling with recently for the first time, whether it's because, you know, they have gone through high school, through COVID or college, through COVID, or whether they're someone who, you know, has had their politics radically shifted because what COVID, uh, because of what COVID has um, sort of laid bare for all of us and how COVID has taken a lot of these dynamics that, that you're talking about and these things that we just obsess over here. We're like complete fucking sickos for looking at these tiny parts of the state and picking them apart and going, you know, what is actually fucking going on here? And that's why I was kicking myself like, God damn it. I just this stuff is so important to me that like my version of a world that I am working to is it's so fundamentally important that that does not include policing and police that all else springs from that. But I forget that that's something that's not at the center of some people's inquiry and that they they sometimes feel that it's like we have to pick either or. But the point is experimenting and also fighting against the things that are like currently consigning us to slow death and for more control and better of the good things. Because like, you know, I think Ruth Wilson Gilmore put it so well when I talked to her uh, in October of last year and she's like, you know, yeah, like the state is prisons, it's cops, it's the military, but it's libraries and schools and hospitals. (laughs) And you know, organized abandonment is one way for a state to construct itself, but it's not the only way. Exactly. And, right. you know, the point of looking at organized abandonment as a critique is not necessarily to sort of use it as a point of con- condemnation, but like as a point to signal to you that here is a place where experimentation is direly needed. 
Absolutely. And also to recognize um, through experimentation where the things that we're trying to undo in states continue to reproduce themselves and to be rigorous in those experiments and to be like, "Mm, it seems, and this is where I think folks in the global South are like, we feel like this experiment that we've been running for 60, 80 years keeps coming to the same outcome. Can we run a different one or run two simultaneously or three simultaneously (laughs) or and it means a lot to to hear that because I think we're, you know Dean is I, one of many of the things I love about Dean is that Dean is constantly asking questions mm-hmm. and you know asking questions about things uh, uncomfortable and inconvenient questions. There were times when we would be organizing or advocating or litigating around you know policy or whatever where we were trying to reduce the harm of the current system while simultaneously dismantling. But there are many times when Dean would be like, is what we're doing just building the thing that we're trying to tear down? Is what we're doing actually going to produce a material change? Or is it just going to look good on paper? Is what we're doing actually going to increase possibilities for trans liberation? Or will it increase possibilities, you know, for trans, you know, conscription, surveillance, constraint, coercion, and control in this system? And so much of what the questions that he posed um, sort of pointed to have come to bear, right? There's so many trans critical scholars, organizers, writers who are talking about how, you know, increased visibility of trans people has in fact just enabled more violence and not um, brought the things that folks hope would come in visibility in law or in society or in practice. And so there's there's so much to come with asking the difficult questions. And, you know, Mariam always talks about the the thing that abolitionists do, among others, is, is ask generative questions. And then mm-hmm. Ruth Wilson Gilmore points us to the notion that the question we should be asking is walking up to everyone and being like, hi, I'm in her case, Ruthie, or in my case, Andrea, I'm an abolitionist. And how, what can we do together to solve our problems together? And, you know, the thesis of no more police is that whatever we're trying to do, police are going to get in the way of it. So everything we do that's organizing eventually needs to become abolitionist because abolition is about building a world where all of the things that we care about and all the things that we're fighting for and need are possible. um, And the violence and suffering that we are fighting against is no longer possible through the violence of policing. So we it's really about asking questions and asking more and more questions and not assuming that we have the answers and recognizing that the answers that we have are probably shaped by police and policing. <laughs> and so we want to think again you and again and again it. and again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no. And I, you know, and, and as you both talk about in the book, um, you know, this, this, this approach is something that is like, it's a long history folks have been doing for decades, survival work, working, you know, outside and also against the carceral state simultaneously. And ultimately what it kind of frees us up from is the load of like evidence-based solutions. Cause that's the other thing in policy language and landscapes that we're kind of constantly up against is this demand for evidence that the intervention is worth it, right? And it's one of, I think, the most frustrating things for a lot of people who maybe were newly radicalized in 2020 or by COVID that, you know, there's actually no amount of evidence that you can supply to satisfy that demand, right? Because the point isn't actually for something to be evidence-based. The point is to say, like, you lack evidence and therefore, no, you can't 
sort of experiment in this way with state-sanctioned funds. And so ultimately, though, that's why experimenting in real time outside of the state while also working to shape it and working against it is so important because you're never you're never going to get like well, this is the thing Abby always says that fucking cracks me up you're never going to get an NIH grant to study how to abolish the value form you know like right? we're never going to have the evidence that you know a mutual aid mask block project reduces X many COVID deaths. We can know that to be true and act on it. Yes, so true. So true. So I think as a final thing, um, I'd love if we could just address this kind of last myth that we haven't gotten a chance to touch on yet, which is the idea of defunding the police having happened, failed, and we're now facing the consequences. To just give a couple quick examples of this, I've got a headline from Wall Street Journal. Defund the police is over. Now what? Got another one. Defunding the police and consequences. The predictable consequences of defunding the police. I swear to God, the Wall Street Journal puts out a defund the police has happened, failed, and we are facing consequences article or op-ed more often than they declare the pandemic over. It's really quite remarkable. So I wonder if just to sort of wrap us out and also because, it, you know, this one's a little bit funny to address. I thought it might be a kind of lighthearted way to end today. But I'd love to make sure that we get a chance to talk about it because this shit is everywhere. It truly is. And I think, um, you know, it's just another sleight of hand propaganda thing, which is to, you know, obviously when something is very effective, you're going to pull out all the stops to counter it. And the demand to defund and the, the uprisings of 2020 were very effective in creating a crisis of legitimacy for, for police and policing. And so the first thing they do is reach for their most reliable weapon, which is fear um, with the crime statistics and the crime wave and the crime going up. And as you said earlier, you know, the, there's a, a disconnect between even in communities where homicides did, in fact, go up. The people who are most likely to experience homicide are people who are also most likely to be criminalized. It's not the person who's reading those statistics and being like clutching their pearls and being like, please throw more millions at the police because organized abandonment creates conditions of violence and that's mm. because people are struggling to survive. And that's who's the same communities that are criminalized, deprived of resources are the communities that are most likely to experience violence and um, be the subject of those statistics. So that's the kind of, you know, sleight of hand there. But the, this notion that the, another, so that was, so that was one sort of approach was like the fear mongering, but the other was to claim that it already happened and failed. <laughs> the first one, the, the first line of defense was to be like, oh, well, when they say defund, they don't really mean defund. They just mean like, if you're going to cut everyone's budget, maybe you should trim a little bit in the NYPD's budget. And then <laughs> Mariam wrote the op-ed that was the kind of uh, impetus for this book. She was like, no, that's not what we're saying. <laughs> we're actually <laughs> trying to abolish the police. So they tried the that's not really what they're saying. And then they tried, you know, it's going to become the purge. Death and destruction will prevail. And that didn't happen. And then some people, then they started saying, well, death and destruction has happened, is happening. Um, when, as for all the reasons we've discussed, that's the very simplified version of what happened and, and is not what's happening. Um, and then 
this piece of like it already happened, defund already happened, and it failed is sort of a, a another flank of of their counterattack. It is preposterous that a <laughs> newspaper in a city that was spending nine billion on police in 2020 and is currently debating an 11 billion dollar budget, <laughs> so two billion more for the NYPD uh, since 2020, is claiming that there was ever a defund of police in New York City or anywhere. Um, to the extent, you know, when we at the height of 2020, I think folks had succeeded in getting cuts. Now, mind you, these were cuts on paper. And in many cities were cuts to unfilled vacant positions, cuts to overtime, cuts to special units, uh, but not actual cuts to the number of cops on the street doing things. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, we're we're sort of very much trimming around the edges. At most, we cut uh, 800 million so less than 0.1% of the total amount that we spend on policing every year. And that was at the best of 2020's, you know, successful budget advocacy by folks looking for divestment from policing and investment in community safety. Of that point, of that 8 million, 800 million, 0.01% of the 130 billion, I'm not very good at math, but I think these are the orders of magnitude, <laughs> um, uh, the $130 billion that we spend on law enforcement every year, only 340 million of that got reinvested. And again, only on paper in community safety strategies. So that's the that's the condition that is claimed to be the defund that happened and failed. Mm-hmm. Less than 1%, 0.1% of the total amount we spent on law enforcement was on paper cut in one year. And a fraction of that was put into community safety strategies. And since then, police budgets have, you know, continued to rise and investments in community safety strategies have, you know, including, you know, the... American Rescue Plan Act, which was the biggest potential federal investment in communities that we could have used to be like, what could we build instead? Mm -hmm. What could we create instead? This is more money than any state, county or municipality has ever seen from the federal government. We did so many episodes about that. We had so many ideas. So much possibility, right? Yeah. And even that money all went to the cops. Like all of it. So the question of like the defund has happened, it's like, yeah, the defund of the pandemic happened or pandemic recovery happened. And it went to the police. Exactly. (laughs) And, uh, but yeah, so I think it's preposterous. It's preposterous that when we started this, you know, again, in 2020, we were spending $100 billion on police every year. And now we're spending $130 billion and counting on police every year. And that's just the money we know about. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many ways that what we spend on policing gets hidden in the education. I mean, what they did in New York, they were like, oh, sure, we'll defund the police. We'll just move the money we spend on cops in schools out of the police budget into the Department of Education budget. So there's no cut to the actual funding for police. There's no cut to the actual number of police. And there's certainly no cuts to the practices of policing that are happening. But we'll call that a defund, right? So I think there's so many ways that it was like shell games. You know, in Seattle, they did this great action where they were like fighting to cut 80 vacant positions from the Seattle Police Department, that the Seattle Police Department every year got money to fund 80 cops who didn't exist. And so they did this whole action around ghost cops and bringing ghost busters into City Hall to get rid of the ghost cops, right? So that's the, that's what was defunded, right? Like, it's like mm-hmm. people who literally don't exist were defunded. And so 
it's it's that it's preposterous in that way, you know. And I think we have to keep pushing back and just being like, yeah, I wish that we had defunded the police. This is where we would be if we had defunded the police, but that is absolutely not what happened. And the fact that you keep trying to say it's what happened again is another demonstration of the power of our demand and the power of what we're seeking and and the vision that we're advancing because you're having to just literally make shit up now to to try and move people off of um, something that makes common sense to the average person when you bring it to them. Mm -hmm. Well, and the other thing, too, that's so hard to, like, see with police budgets is also, like, how much of the medical system and our medical spending also is actually a a sort of policing function, because when we're breaking down policing to its core components, really, as you're saying, it's like contain and control, surveil, remove, right? And exercise violence directly on behalf of the state and control space. But, you know, you kind of when you're thinking of those frameworks, like you also have to consider all of the ways that like hospitals and the securitization of like healthcare facilities and private, not police per se, but people who function as police because of some function of the job, or it's a mandatory reporting function that the hospital administrators have imposed. There's also all these ways that the entire healthcare system is deeply implicated and part of this funnel that is policing and one of the places also where policing leeches and extracts from. All of this is so true. And you bring to mind the reality that very soon after the demand to defund rose to national prominence, the very first thing that people were willing to consider, um, and in many cases, the only thing they were willing to consider was to substitute, well, add or substitute healthcare providers to police crisis response teams, um, was really telling. And it really kind of told on how much the state is like, well, if it's not going to be the actual cops, then we'll send in a substitute called healthcare providers, right? (laughs) And or we'll send in healthcare providers with cops and and try and get people to buy that as the answer. And that's why one of the first things that we did at Interrupting Criminalization is put out a report on crisis response teams and different models, including very much the co-response model, um, to sort of debunk this piece, right? Like to say, you know, this, that, as we said earlier, treatment often is trauma. Treatment is another way of of policing surveillance and control and often leads right back to criminalization. And for a few years, probably since this podcast started um, at Interrupting Criminalization, because we look at policing and criminalization through the lens of women, queer and trans people's experiences, one of the first thing that becomes apparent when you do that is how many institutions engage in policing, obviously, um, and how much uh, healthcare provision is a site of criminalization, and not just in the context of abortion care or trans healthcare, but of every kind of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what we did is we brought folks together into a network called the Beyond Do No Harm Network. And it was a network formed to sort of think through all the ways that criminalization happens in the context of access to healthcare, whether it's HIV criminalization, abortion criminalization, criminalization of uh, pregnant and parenting people, drug users, people in the sex trades, migrants, disabled people, um, and so on, and find where there are common sites or forms of criminalization for each of these groups. And then 
build within each of those movements a sort of wing that was focused on criminalization um, through accessing healthcare provision and about resisting it. And so we built that network over a couple of years and grew it in 2020. And then it was kind of ready to roll when Dobbs came down and the latest wave of anti-trans legislation came out. So we launched in the fall of 2022, these 13 principles to extract criminalization from care provision. And that includes extracting cops from places of care provision, but that's just the first principle. And there's thir- there's 12 more um, of ways that people who are healthcare providers or who care about healthcare um, can jump in to intervene on all the ways that criminalization happens when you're seeking care. And to sort of highlight this sleight of hand the state is trying to pull being like, sure, we'll just call them social workers and put them in police uniforms and send them out. Or (laughs) sure, we'll just make sure that people are involuntarily committed to a psychiatric facility and basically incarcerated in a different cell where we might use, you know, chemical restraints instead of physical ones, or probably both, you know, like that, that to really interrupt the sleight of hand that that the state was trying to pull around calling something care or treatment or um, support that's just another form of regulation. And whether that's, you know, drug treatment, psychiatric treatment, other forms of uh, coerced medical interventions that are being offered as substitutes um, or additions to existing forms of policing and punishment. So really invite folks to check out that Mm -hmm. section of our website, the Beyond Do No Harm Network. Invite people to sign on to the principles as individuals or organizations and associations. And then you'll get notifications about different sessions we have with healthcare providers across the spectrum from, you know, doctors to health aides to midwives to community medics to, you know, a person who wants to be able to support their neighbors Mm -hmm. um, to think about how to implement these principles as practitioners, as institutions, and as associations of practitioners um, who can then really disrupt this and and ensure that when we're talking about healthcare, um, we're talking about care Mm -hmm. that actually improves health and well-being um, and um, through a disability justice lens and not um, just a, a substitution of another form of carceral control. No, I mean, these, it's a, such a fantastic resource. I It's probably the thing I send to people most when I'm asked for like advice or resources, this and then also you all did the cops out of care uh, strategy trainings in 2021 where they're, all the notes and the recordings from that are also on the Interrupting Criminalization website um, under, I think it's like Beyond Do No Harm events, which are, it's it's fantastic and it's been really helpful for folks who are looking to radicalize their colleagues, especially if you are uh, maybe recently organizing with your healthcare worker colleagues of some kind. I know a lot of our listeners are in that circumstance right now. So I really have to say, Andrea, I so appreciate having you come on. It's been hard not to like, you know, fangirl out. But, but I'm like a Death Panel fangirl. Well, we're, I'm we're, an Andrea Ritchie fangirl. So aw, it's so a mutual exciting. appreciation society here. Yeah, I love a mutual appreciation society. And it's so it, it really means a lot to hear that work, you know, really resonates with people and opens up new lines of thinking and, and possibilities and spaces for conversations like these. I think we all have the capacity and gifts to shape the world around us. And we all have different ways of doing it. And 
I so appreciate people who step out to create spaces for conversations like the ones on death panel. I feel invigorated by them. I feel inspired by them. And I feel like they are creating portals and possibilities everywhere. And um, so I'm just really grateful to you for stepping out to make that space. I think that's, I think that's how we get free. I think it's by creating more and more spaces in which to dream and challenge each other and to sort of sharpen our analysis and our understanding and also learn from each other and ask those questions upon questions upon questions that Dean asks us all the time <laughs> um, and to learn and grow from our answers. So yeah. thank you so much for making this podcast and thank you for having me on it. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Andrea, for all of your work and for a really fun time. And I think this is the perfect place to leave it for today. Again, Andrea's book is No More Police, A Case for Abolition. There will be a link in the episode description. Andrea, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I love being here. We love having you. And patrons, we will see you Monday in the patron feed. For everyone else, we'll catch you later next week to support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism at your local bookstore or request it at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.